Hello and welcome to PhD Pending, the podcast for early career scholars in the humanities. Every episode, we will discuss an aspect of PhD life to share both the ups and the downs so that if you're doing a PhD, you'll know you're not alone, and so that those of you who are considering a PhD can get a sense of what it might be like. Well, hello, PhD Pending listeners. Welcome to the final episode of our series in which we invite some of our friends to talk about their experiences as people of colour in academia and beyond. In today's episode, I, Anne, am once again joined by one of my friends, this time the wonderful Tiffany Soga. Hey Tiff, we're so excited to have you. Hi! So Tiff, tell us a bit about yourself. What do you do? What is your ethnicity? Where do you live? Sure, I feel like there's so many complicated questions. Um, uh, as far as what I do, so I am the managing editor of a print publication called Slanted. Um, it focuses on Asian American stories and perspectives um, through different creative mediums. So we have personal essays, we have poems, we have um, screenplays, we have short fictional pieces and beautiful artwork. Um, and it's an annual print publication. Um, and I think of it as kind of my my creative approach to activism. Um, and so that's my, that's my biggest passion. Uh, prior to that, I was actually an academic. Um, I was a PhD doctoral student at King's College London studying literature. Um, and that had always kind of been my, my ambition was to be a PhD, um, which we can go into later, uh, how that turned <laughs> out. Um, <laughs> And uh, as far as my ethnicity, I am Taiwanese-Japanese, um, although like most Asians, I am basically a mutt of a lot of different things. Um, so on my mom's side, there's a lot of South, um, South Asian, uh, Southeast Asian uh, background. So we have Vietnamese, we have Thai, and then on my dad's side, a lot of East Asian, um, so Taiwanese and Japanese. And then I believe the other question was... Where you're born. Where I'm born. I'm Where you're from. Yeah. Where I'm, do you live now? I'm from the 626, which means nothing if you do not live in California. But um, it is like the widest, the biggest um, uh, Asian community in... Or not the biggest, but like one of the largest Asian communities in Southern California, just outside of LA. Yeah, grew up there and then moved to Boston for a few years for undergrad. Moved to Bristol uh, for a few years with Anne. Uh, for my master's and then uh, went over to London for a little bit. Now I've moved back to uh, Southern California and I'm in Pasadena. And that kind of answers the next question, which is how did we meet? We met um, in our master's program at the University of Bristol. I'm not even sure how our friendship began because I can't pinpoint an exact moment. Um, Mm -hmm. But I do remember like a very deep sense of, yeah, this is going to go really well when Anna and I stared at the way that we took our notes together. Yeah. Um, and looked at our pretty penmanship and then, uh, traded pens and played around with one another's pens. Um, <laughs> which sounds super nerdy, but I'd imagine that this audience appreciates that. So our friendship is and productivity. Exactly. That's like, that's what's grounded our friendship really is the number of times <laughs> we talk about our highlighters and our like, different point mm pens it's great it's a it's a strong foundation it really is it really is it really is you were the one who recommended those fabulous pastel highlighters to me the midliners them yeah everyone who color coordinates their life their notes should have one they're so great i know they're so good i use them every day i do too amazing (laughs) 
<laughs> well, anyways, I couldn't pinpoint a, you know, like a proper starting point for our friendship either. Yeah, so you are one of those women in our course that I really looked up to. I was very That's fascinated. So <laughs> because, yeah, I was so like a deer in the headlights coming in. I said that in the episode with Josie as well. Um, just walking into that new, you know, experience. And then all of you intelligent women were there. And I was like, I'm not sure I belong You're here. You're <laughs> so funny because I remember being really intimidated by you in the beginning. Hang on, that's how we bonded. We both felt like outlaws. Yes, Wasn't that it. I think that was Wasn't because that I thought I, I thought people just saw me as a dumb like LA girl with a bit of an accent. Um, yeah, it, it made no sense to me when you confided in me that you felt like an outlaw. It 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 made no sense to me because I just remember being really intimidated by like how well you spoke, um, and just like your ideas. And then I think that that was the moment, right? Where the two of us were like, wait, this is ridiculous. Why are we thinking these things of ourselves and of other people? This is fine. We are meant to be here. And we're also quite bubbly in social we situations. Are, yes. And I feel like that very much juxtaposed whatever was going on yes. with all the English people on our course. I didn't think anyone liked me. <laughs> I just thought it was, I just thought it was too much for people. Like, I remember a friend telling me, like, sometimes I might have to tone it down. And I was like, oh, okay. Just 10% less. That's new. Give me 10% yeah, less. Yeah. She like, she was like, maybe just go to class without coffee one day and see what, see where that gets you. <laughs> oh, no. It was interesting. It was definitely interesting. Well, speaking of cultural shock and moving for your studies, that's, that's where we were at. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Maybe in terms of um, just to locate our listeners a small bit better because um, we are located in Europe and most of our listeners won't necessarily be aware of, you know, the history of Asian Americans in the States. And yeah. maybe you could give us somewhat of an overview mm. of, you know, the big bullet points mm. and maybe, you know, just to make us aware of the framework mm -hmm. and you know, your family in that framework? Yeah, yeah, that's a loaded question. And so um, I can only speak, and I, as kind of a disclaimer for the the rest of this, is that I can only speak from my lived experiences. Um, Asian Americans as an identifier covers a, a huge array of different ethnic groups within the Asian American communities. Um, and so, you know, my background is a little bit Southeast uh, Asian, definitely East Asian. Um, and so on my dad's side, uh, we are Taiwanese Japanese, although there's like a whole complicated backdrop to that as well, as with most, you know, countries of conflict. Um, and then on my mom's side, there is Thai and Vietnamese and a little bit of Hong Kongese. Um, on my mom's side, my family fled Vietnam, um, during communism and, moved their way up to Taiwan for a little bit before coming to America. Um, and that's my mom's family immediately. A lot of, you know, one of, one of my uncles who is an uncle by marriage was a, was a refugee after the Vietnam War, during the Vietnam War. Um, he was chased through, uh, jungles, um, and then found himself on a boat. Um, and then I, I think from what I remember, um, an American Navy ship had passed by and he managed to crawl onto the ship and was, was saved. So he came as a refugee. Um, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of issues, but with the, uh, Vietnamese, um, 
community here in the U.S. tying back to the Vietnam War, a lot of refugees who came um, with nothing to them and a lot of trauma, a lot of trauma, understandably. Um, and I can only speak a little bit to that because it's to this day not something my family talks a lot about. Um, mm-hmm. We don't talk about how like the the emotional side of them, you know, being forced to leave their home. And so I just hear kind of the factual bits. Um, my dad's side, uh, pretty easy. I mean, pretty clear cut, a little bit less convoluted. But um, my dad was born in Japan, or my grandpa was born in Japan, occupied Taiwan. Um, and so my grandpa was raised fully Japanese, even though by blood they're Taiwanese. Um, and so okay. when the occupation ended, my grandpa didn't know what to do because his whole life was Japanese. And when Japan pulled out of Taiwan, it was very disorienting. So he moved everyone over to Japan. And so my dad was raised completely Japanese the way that I am raised completely American. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of issues with Asian American history um, in that a lot of it is not recorded. I found out, I think, when I was 26 that there was a massacre here in L.A., um, I think in the 1800s, of people just going around killing Chinese laborers um, right. in L.A., which blew my mind. And, and I live here, yeah. and it's not something we've ever talked about. So a lot of what I hear are just small bits. I don't have a formal education in this. It's just kind of my own research and my own time. There was the mm-hmm. Chinese Exclusion Act in the 1800s. This is... Sorry, I'm going to ramble, but this is a lot, and I don't have, like, a clear trajectory. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. Um, When we built the railroad that connected the West Coast to the East Coast, basically, Mm -hmm. um, they needed a lot of labor. And there were a lot of Irish laborers involved in building the railroad, but there were a lot of Chinese laborers who were just brought in for free, cheap labor, who were treated terribly. So many died while they were laying these tracks. There are so many bodies scattered through America. Um, and the horrific part is that, that there's this one photo, I think it's called the champagne photo. Um, and it was supposed to be, have been taken when the last spike was put into the earth and you do not see a single Chinese person in that photo. Um, and we have a story about it in issue four of Slanted, um, where one of our writers writes about that experience of, of uncovering that, you know, in American history, um, and us not ever being represented. So there was that. The Chinese Exclusion Act was, um, it, it was partly tied to that, but also communism. And, you know, America's always hated what they called then Orientals, which is offensive. Don't ever use that word. I know it's a word mm-hmm. that is very commonly used in Europe and in the UK um, because of the empire, the British Empire. But um, I would implore people to look into the word Oriental and um, learn why it's inappropriate. Um, and so Chinese people specifically were excluded from immigrating to America. Um, and those who were here could never get citizenship. Um, so that's a whole thing in and of itself. And then with Japanese Americans, with my family and my partner's family specifically during World War II, uh, Japanese Americans were forced into internment camps. There's a lot of debate about whether they should be called internment camps or concentration camps. Um, and I'm not going to take a stance on that, but it is definitely an interesting academic debate to look into. Um, but, you know, my partner's family, he is fifth generation Japanese American. His family was here during the internment period. Um, and they used to own all, all the farms in, in their one little area of Southern California, and they raised all the produce that people ate in that area. 
Um, mm-hmm. Everyone knew that family, and it was a very well-loved family in the community. And then when internment happened, the government seized their lands and put most of his family members in an internment camp. Um, to this day, they've never gotten it back. Um, there is a plaque on what is now a Trump golf course on their old lands. And the plaque on the edge, talk about marginalization, on the edge of this Trump golf course is dedicated to his family. And that is the legacy that remains um, of his fifth generation Japanese American heritage in that in that specific spot. So there's a lot that doesn't even cover Filipinos. That doesn't even cover like Thai like communities, Hmong like communities. It's just there's so much. And then the rest of like Southeast Asia. But that is specifically what I what I do know. Yeah, and there's so much to unpack. So much. Yeah, about that. Not just in California, but. All across across the states. yeah absolutely yeah i think the the camps is something that on the surface level people somewhat know about mm-hmm. and then obviously um the the racism and everything that came with the vietnam war and the propaganda mm-hmm. um you know that yeah came with that yeah so what i always find very interesting and it's something that a friend of mine pointed out to me, he is American, um, that you identify as Asian American. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, when we met, you were American. Yes. But so see, see where I'm getting at. No, no, no. So this is, this is, I love talking about this and, and I'm, I'm really grateful that you're giving me a platform too, because I grew up in America, um, you know, in the 626 again, which is predominantly Asian. And so I, I was never really a minority in my childhood. Like I knew, I knew in the greater context of America, I was a minority, but I was also 16. I had no idea what the greater context of America even meant. I never left my home. So I was a majority most of my life. Um, and, and I was very comfortable. Um, I moved to Boston at 18. Um, and that was very eye opening. And I never, I had already felt you know, like I wasn't at home in Boston mm-hmm. because obviously I wasn't. I moved from L.A., but there was a different level to it of of being treated as a bit of an outsider. Um, I think that's when I realized that people saw me as Asian and not as American. And that was never something that I had really dealt with in the 626. Um, I remember like my first day and like you said, Anne. Um, people don't know about, you know, the internment camps. I think it was like my first month at BU. I went to Boston University and um, a young boy, blonde hair, blue eyes, came up to me and asked me, what are you? Which don't ever ask a person of color, what are you? Um, and did, and asked perfectly, like, ask me what my ethnicity is. Like, then I'm more open to the conversation. But what are you reduces me to a what and not a who. Um, and so I never been asked that question before like that. And a little bit in shock, I said, Taiwanese, Japanese. And he said, Japanese. So Pearl Harbor then as kind of a way to connect. I'm not sure how he thought that would have worked out well for him. Um, but that blew my mind. And so I, from that point on at 18, I just always felt like I had to throw American into my identity because everyone assumed I wasn't, I was an English major. Uh, but people mm-hmm. would talk to me like uh, they were concerned I didn't know English. People would commend me that I had great, like, English-speaking skills. And I said, yes, well, I'm on a PhD track. Like, I was born and raised here. Don't know, don't know why you'd think any differently. Um, so when I moved to England, I had never felt oddly more at home than yeah. on a different continent because every single one of my friends, you included, 
refer to me as their American friend. And the first time I heard that, I think, was by one of my choir mates. Um, and he was like, I was talking about my American friend Tiff. And I don't remember the rest of his conversation because I had never been referred to as that before. And I think I, mm-hmm. I fully think I blanked out for a, a solid few minutes. And I went home feeling really good about myself that day and, and wondering why I felt so good about myself. And it was because on a different continent, it was the first time someone looked at me as a member of my nation. Yeah. As a 20, well, how old were we? As a 24 year old. 24, yeah. Like around then, right? Like, yeah. I spent over two decades, I guess, not being an American in other people's eyes. And it was, it was a very different experience. Um, and, why I like going back to England sometimes because I just feel more in my skin in a weird way. And I don't know how else to explain that. Yeah. So you think that moving abroad and actually away from the States helped you to not find your identity, but, you know, engage with your identity on another level because you were defined by the English or Europeans, you know, against something else. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was really a weird revel revelation. Um, Mm -hmm. not to say that I was never proud of my country. Um, well, you know, it has its moments. Um, but (laughs) I never really owned that American side of me because I didn't feel like it was Mm -hmm. mine to own because everyone kept telling me, um, I had to defend myself constantly. And I, I want to say I felt my most patriotic self, when I was Mm -hmm. living outside of my country because I was allowed to be American without having to justify it. I was allowed to talk about my American perspective without having to throw in Asian moments to make people understand the connection. Um, Did you feel more accepted? I think race in England is very interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. And I do think that like in America, Asian Amer- uh, Asians in general are treated better than other races, which is terrible and a privilege that I know about myself. Um, I think I was accepted because of that dual combination of she's Asian and she's American. Um, but not just that she's American, that she's an educated American. I think there's a distinction when people outside of America look at Americans. There's the Americans that, you know, aren't wearing masks right now, that, uh, you know, are voting for Trump still, that went to, um, was it Tulsa? Tulsa? Yeah, yeah, who went to Tulsa. There's those Americans, and then there are the educated one of us, which I'd like to think is actually a greater number. Um, and so I do think I felt accepted because there was an understanding, being an academic, being in an academic space, yeah. that I was an intelligent um, American. Yeah. In terms of your academic career, Mm. I mean, you moved to Boston, you studied at the top, top, top universities in the world. That's nice. Um, for our subject, right? Yeah. Um, and you have this very unique standpoint of being able to compare three different university experiences Mm -hmm. on three different levels Mm -hmm. in education Mm -hmm. on two continents and two different countries mm-hmm. so that's a very unique standpoint mm-hmm. um so i'm wondering if we break it down a small mm-hmm. bit more um because you studied english lit um at boston university we studied victorian literature together mm-hmm. and you went on to do an english lit phd at mm-hmm. king's 
if you break it down into the academic experience, maybe we start with Boston Uni, where you did your undergrad. Sure. Um, maybe in terms of syllabus, maybe in terms of something, you know, an everyday occurrence that happened that stands out to you in mm -hmm. hindsight, in a seminar, in a lecture, um, where you felt that there was institutional racism or that, that something was going on from, you know, the university side. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, me coming into Boston, I think, is worth bringing some of my childhood context, which is that um, I told my parents when I was 13 that I wanted to be a, like a Shakespearean PhD, basically, in England one day. And um, it was a very weird thing for a 13-year-old tiny Asian girl to say to her parents. Um And so when I got to BU, I was always the only Asian in class. I think in my entire four years there, there was only one ever other Asian person in one course in my four years as um, an English, you know, pre-academic in undergrad. I don't think I personally experienced any racism at that point, um, specifically to the academic institution, only because I presented and this is part of the complexity of being an Asian American is I presented myself as very quote-unquote white passing from a behavioral standpoint there are a lot of times where people what will, does that mean yeah so there are a lot of times where people will look at Asians and they'll say things like oh but you're basically white um because of the way we speak because we don't we might not present like we speak our parents's you know mother tongues um, we have whatever this means, white interests, which, you know, I was a Shakespeareanist. I guess that's, it's a white man, who, white words. So I guess, sure. Um, but it was one, and even the way that I dressed, the way I did my makeup, um, people always just kind of treated me as like, oh, she's from SoCal, which means she's basically white for the most mm -hmm. part. Um, so I didn't really have any issues. My issue personally was actually with the program structure, um, Mm -hmm. And I didn't notice this till I graduated. That's the sad, sad thing is that I spent four years at BU taking these courses and I didn't realize how sad it was until I left was that I think there's only one requirement, at least when I was there in the English department to graduate with a bachelor's in English. There was only one requirement course um, where you had to take a, a class on non-white, like non-classic, non-canonical, you know, narratives um yeah. so i remember my senior year i signed up for asian american african-american female contemporary writers that was the name of the full course i loved the name uh, of the course everything in one course everything in one course which we'll get to that but like i just remember seeing it in my in my course booklet when i was picking classes and being like yes that sounds badass that sounds fucking amazing that's asian americans and african-americans in one, which you don't really see us together because there's been a whole complex history of conflict. Um, and I really liked the merge of the two. Um, it wasn't again till I left that I did think that there could be more to do to separate because both communities have such complex semester long, you know, lessons to be taught. Um, when I got there, I realized it was a graduate level course. Right. So you had to be a junior or a senior to take it. Um, which meant that undergrads didn't know that, for the most part, it was accessible to them. Um, right. I think, and then everything else was just like, you have to take a course on, you know, poetry. You have to take a course on, um, I don't know, American narratives. 
which were white narratives effectively with one, maybe one or two Native American pieces. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was my issue when I left was that I spent all four years reading Anglo text, um, mostly text written by dead white men, sometimes women. Um, And it wasn't until my senior year that I could select a higher level course that wasn't openly available to all undergrads um, and to shove two beautifully complex communities into one. um, I felt a little lacking. At the same time, it came at my senior year. So I had already decided what I wanted to do my master's in. It didn't come early enough. I feel like if it did, my focus might have been a little different. I might have been able to accept my Asian American identity a little bit more because I had the literature to to feel represented. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was specifically my BU experience was I didn't realize it till the tail end. And even then it was too subtle for me to really dive into it. So kind of diving deeper into that, was there any point where you self-aware of the fact that you were reading white literature, that you didn't have the choice? Was mm. there any point in your degree where you felt, well, there is a text by, you know, an author of color, mm-hmm. Asian American, mm-hmm. black, you know, mm-hmm. that would have presented the topic that we're talking about mm-hmm. better? Or was it just something that was kind of a given that you had to go through, yeah. you know? It was a given, but it wasn't a sad given. It was it was one mm. of those things where I think because I was so conditioned to it, right? You look at our high school curricula too. Our high school mm. piece, most of what we read is like Moby Dick, Chaucer, like Shakespeare. But um, the one, the one Asian story, the one Mexican story, the one like the one Native American story, um, and so I think it never occurred to me that we could have read anything outside of the canon. That's what's so sad. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, again, didn't realize it at all throughout my, yeah. my, my undergrad experience. I think when I got to that senior level course, I thought, Oh, I had to work to get here. I have to work higher up in order to see myself even slightly represented. And that's right. in retrospect, so tragic was it didn't occur to me that I could challenge that status quo. Yeah. Do you think that shifted when you moved to Bristol? I think by the time I got to Bristol, I was already entrenched in um, English literature. Not to say that I regret any of it. I flippin' love Victorian lit. Like, I love the literature that I got to study. I really do. And I see nothing wrong with it. And I think there's something really unique to having a person of color study that literature. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, like I said, like, I think if if I had done a little more... Um, if I had done a little more and read a little more about Asian American narratives in the early stages of my undergrad, I might, I might not have, I might not have selected Victorian as, as a a thought for my master's. Um, I didn't feel my personal experience at Bristol university was very lovely in part because I had a wonderful cohort, um, in part because I had friends like you who again, never made me feel like I was the odd one out. I definitely stood out as the American, but I never stood out as the Asian. Um, yeah. And so I do think my Bristol experience was quite wholesome and quite nice. Well, if you compare, you know, lectures and stuff and how people treated you outside the cohort in, you know, the department mm. or in the university, did you see any differences to your American department? 
No, but I think that is because, like I said, I think race and racism in England is so different. It's not as outlandish as Americans. Um, and so I don't think, I think it was so subtle that I didn't really notice it. Um, mm-hmm. I can't say that there was ever any moment in Boston by my peers where I felt, um, personally, like I felt like mm. there were racist intents. It was just like the syllabus, right? We weren't included in the thought behind the education. I never felt it from my professors. No one ever asked me if I, if like I had a Chinese name, but Tiffany was my like, was Tiffany my real name? You know what I mean? Like, I've never had those issues. Mm-hmm. And I never had an issue in Bristol. I will say my favorite memory of Bristol where I was reminded that I was Asian. <laughs> Am I allowed to say the professor's name? I won't. It's okay. Ooh. I won't. I won't. Yeah. But uh, we were in the lecture and um, we were talking about this like very complex thought process. And our professor said, it's, it's, it's something along the lines of like, it's so difficult to understand. It's like, it's like not understanding Chinese. And then default, he turned and looked at me and said, is that inappropriate to say? And then I think he realized he turned to the only Asian person in the room. And then he pivoted to address the rest of the class. I know I was not alone in recognizing that because, and you brought it up with me after the lecture. It was like, it was the only moment where I remembered I was Asian before American. I personally didn't take it as an offense because I knew he didn't mean it that way. He's like such a sweet, lovely lecture, um, and, and, and a lovely human being, but it was a comical moment. It was probably the only moment in Bristol where I felt like, um, like I was Asian. Yeah. Yeah. Like, do you remember that moment? Absolutely. I think we, we locked eyes after it happened. We did. we were just laughing because yeah, there was there was a moment of realization <laughs> that kind of yeah. I mean, I can't I can't speak for you, but the yeah. way it seemed as an audience yeah. to that situation, I was like, there was a there was a moment of clarity after he said it. Yes, where I was like, oh no, I think I made a face to like a what kind of face um yeah I I, but it wasn't like in a I like it was just funny so I remember my face kind of reacting um and I had to tell him I was like no 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 it's okay I had to tell him it was okay (laughs) and it was really funny and I think I think it was Kaylee but I looked at her she looked horrified (laughs) and I think that was a really nice thing with someone else in the group looked horrified for me yeah because it was clearly on someone else's thought. I don't know that if if that interaction happened in a different classroom, maybe in the States, I don't know that my peers would have noticed it. Um, yeah. You know what I mean? But I, I do remember that moment being hilarious. That's probably one of my highlight moments in Bristol. Yeah. It was definitely a hiccup, but it was... I like that I made him feel uncomfortable when he... Yeah. I kind of did. Like, I like that he checked himself and that he felt uncomfortable. I think that was to That's his credit. It. That's what made me okay with it, that he seemed apologetic. Yeah, you know? it was almost like it was almost like he caught himself. He did, he did, and, and I, knew I that. think, yeah, and I think that's where you know the rest of us mm-hmm. became aware of because you know sometimes things just slip. Yes. You say things yes. um, that you don't really think about that are very offensive. Yes, you know, as as a white person, yes. that you don't even maybe you don't even know. Maybe yes. you're not coming from a place of malice. You're coming from a mm-hmm. place of. I don't know, but not in terms of I'm being ignorant because I choose to be ignorant. Mm-hmm. It's just because I hadn't had the time or the resources exactly. to educate myself just yet. Yes. So 
is there were there any like instances overall where it was like white people were trying to be supportive and then went into the complete opposite direction i don't know that that was an issue i feel like the issues that any issue that i had was only because i was american if i'm being honest like we mm. we had spoken about right like I, i'm very yeah. bubbly look i'm from la i say like a lot i know this about myself i cannot <laughs> change it i live here now in the same way where Anne, you're starting to sound a little irish you know what i mean like we can't oh, no <laughs> we can't change these things <laughs> Um, but I mean, there were, there were, I think there were moments where it was more about me being an American, which ironically made me feel more American than Asian, which mm -hmm. I guess is a good thing. Um, I, I was definitely mans, mansplained to a couple times. Um, and there was mm. one lecture where uh, a professor asked me what I thought about Wordsworth. And I responded that I think he was just a little depressed and just needed to chill. And then I, I started off my explanation like that very casually because that's how I approach academia because I think that's how we should talk to younger people about highbrow theories, making it language accessible. Um, and then I went into my own analysis and then nobody responded to my analysis. And then we had an Oxford educated posh young man repeat the same thing that I said, just without my wonderful charm. Um, and everyone in class nodded along with him. I did have that moment of, well, I can't say shit. Like, what was yeah. I going to do? I wasn't going to defend myself. Luckily, I had a professor who did defend me. He ended up being my mm -hmm. master's supervisor by my request. But he did say, okay, so exactly what Tiffany said then. And I had never yeah. had someone actually do that. Um, yeah. Someone, an authoritative figure who intervened for me because I felt like I couldn't speak out. I guess that was a pivotal moment as well. Right, yeah. Well, that's very interesting because mm -hmm. it also plays into the idea of, you know, education and the name of the university, if you will. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. did you experience any of that at King's? Was there... You know, because yeah. you did your MA at Bristol, yeah. moved back for a while, and then you started a PhD at King's. Yeah. Um, and obviously, it's, again, it's another world mm -hmm. than going from Bristol to King's. Mm -hmm. King's College London is an exceptional university. Um, I would not have applied if I didn't think that it was an exceptional university. But um, the English department could use a little more progress. Um, right. My entire academic career as an English academic, I had one Asian in an undergrad class and then my amazing friend Ivy in my PhD cohort. And there was definitely a moment, and I don't want to speak to her perspective, but I'll speak to mine, where I saw her in the cohort and I immediately gravitated towards her because I had never seen another Asian at a higher education, like, you know, highbrow academic institution. I've never seen another. And she was studying, she is studying um, medieval literature, which I think is amazing. Um, because when are you ever, whenever is, has anyone seen an Asian medievalist? Medievalist. Uh, yeah. Amazing. Um, she has faced some issues as well. So if you ever want to connect with her, let me know because she has a lot of issues right now trying to connect Asian medievalism Mm -hmm. to the curriculum when there are gatekeepers who tell them it's non-existent. It's, it's a right. whole thing. Um, my issue at King's was that, just so everyone knows, um, I left my PhD program after a year. I did not have two supervisors who supported my work. 
Um, and part of it in speaking with other English folks and in speaking with other academics, both American and English, um, they have mentioned to me that they wondered if there was a bias against me twofold, that I was a petite Asian woman, petite, um, and uh, an American. Mm -hmm. And so both of those things might have worked against me in the way that my faculty yeah. members worked with me. Um, I don't know that I felt it that way. I definitely felt that part of it was because I was American and bubbly. Um, mm -hmm. But I have had other people say it could also be because you are a young Asian woman who is on the smaller, submissive-looking side, which I get. Again, I'm, I'm tiny. I People underestimate me a lot. Um, and mm -hmm. so, you know, some of that might have been racial. I admittedly try not to think about it, but I would love any questions you want to provide to poke me to think about it because I do think that it's a trauma I'm still trying to unravel and I don't know the questions necessarily to ask yeah and you're still processing I'm still process it's been three years since I left my PhD do I miss my mm -hmm. PhD every day yes is it majorly disappointing that I got effectively gaslit in an academic way I don't want to mm -hmm. co-op the term gaslighting um but my perspectives um and my experience was uh completely overlooked um, yeah, you know, and I, I do wonder if there were racial o undertones to, to why that was racial and mm -hmm. na national, we can't say national, but like, you know what I mean? As an American and as an Asian American. Yeah. Yeah. Well, still racist. Yeah, absolutely. Doesn't absolutely. matter if it goes against absolutely. your ethnicity or your place of birth. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So there's, there's definitely loads to unpack. And, um, if we ever do an episode about what it's like to, drop out of a PhD. Hit you're, me up. You're so, we would love to have you. I have again. so many thoughts about it. I look, I love higher education. I love it. I love it with a deep passion, but I think there's something very flawed with our current gatekeepers. And I'm excited yeah. for your generation of academics to own mm -hmm. that space and to correct their shortcomings. Yeah. And I think it's going to be, you know, a big subject and, yes. you know, a big topic that needs addressing yes. but the question is will we be able to address these things or will we be mm. kept out right especially with a pandemic especially yeah. with all the funding cuts and everything yeah. that's going on um will we get the chance to actually address it but you know with everything that has been going mm -hmm. on with the pandemic mm -hmm. with the death of george floyd mm. with the black lives matter movement with that heightened attention to the issues of institutional racism mm -hmm. in the States, not just against black people, but of course also against Asian Americans, Native Americans, mm -hmm. you know, too many to actually list. Mm -hmm. um, did you notice that more friends of you reached out to you about, you know, resources that they can check mm -hmm. up on or how you feel about the situation? Because I know you're an activist. Mm -hmm. You're very active on, on social media. Mm -hmm. Josie and I were talking about the idea of people are coming out of the woods and they have this quote-unquote social media activism mm -hmm. that doesn't go beyond Instagram stories. Mm -hmm. Performative, um, performative activism. That's it, that's yes. it. And I know that you're very much on the side of activism, mm -hmm. active activism, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so as one of my closest friends, I know that I can always turn to you mm -hmm. and ask you and then, you know, this mm -hmm. thing of it's very 
you know, stressful to be the only black friend or the only yeah. Asian friend to all the white people. Did you notice like an increase of people asking you or mm. how did that feel for you? Are you seeing it as kind of a, a chance, an opportunity? Mm -hmm. um, I've not seen, so there are two different things to attack over the last four months. There is coronavirus and what mm -hmm. Trump likes to call the Chinese virus and there's racism yep. there that we can talk about with specifically to black lives matter and i do want to speak about this the asian american community the asian community at large not just asian americans has always had a history of anti-black sentiment we have immense mm -hmm. colorism even in our own race um and it unfortunately has also been projected into the black community and so mm -hmm. when i have had friends hit me up around black lives matter Most of it is some friends who, and they don't mean, they're not malicious about this. It's literally the way of their upbringing was, um, well, why don't we talk about, you know, some of the murders against Asian men, which is fair. Um, mm -hmm. And so I do have to take a moment to be like, yes, that is a, like, we should talk about the murders of Asian men. However... You know, we have not been persecuted the length of time, the brutality of it all. We haven't even come close as, our, as a whole Asian American community to what the black community has suffered. Mm -hmm. With the black community, it's, it's not just men, it's women. It's not just women, it's trans. Like all of these black lives legitimately that have been just, just persecuted and i can't think of a word that's worse than that just murdered outlandishly whereas with asians yes it happens um and i'm not saying that we can't speak out about it we should but um it's also not my my wheelhouse of expertise so much as i i know more about other communities um which you know yeah. i should learn I, i'm taking initiatives to learn more about mine but right now that's not my priority us having our privilege mm -hmm. I would like to educate on others. Um, so I've had a lot of Asian friends reach out and say like, well, why do you think this is happening? Or, um, you know, some people saying, well, we're minorities too, and we've managed to pick ourselves up. Like, why can't, you know, the black and brown community do the same? Um, I have had long conversations with people about these things. Um, I try to throw in stats. I try to throw in like reports by universities that are, you know, well reputed um and is it exhausting a little bit yes what i will say and i think this is a question you're getting around to is is it okay to go to a person of color for resources yeah i think yes but know who you're going to this is a very draining work for all of us not to say that we don't love it and i don't want to say everyone loves it but if you are going to go to someone for resources go to an academic go to a researcher yeah. Go to a statistician, like go to those people of color because it's literally their jobs to do these things, which means like it's their bread and butter, right? And it doesn't have to be anyone in your community. If, if you're not a person of color and you're curious about what you can do to be a supportive individual and an ally, look up your university, look up the university closest to you, look up who's teaching in that department. And email that professor. Because you and me as academics, if I got an email from a random stranger who was like, hey, I am white and I would learn like to learn more about what I can do. What are some books you can provide? Shoot, I'd send them my syllabus. Like, 
I would be so thrilled for that. You know what I mean? Maybe don't mm-hmm. go to your best friend um, who does find it exhausting because it's not their job. It's really not. For us, it's yeah. literally our jobs to educate. Um, so if you're going to go out and reach out to someone, if they're not in your community, I encourage you to reach out to an academic and a researcher and maybe a reporter as well. Reporters are great resources. So as an Asian academic, I'm mm. not going to ask you as my friend, I'm going to ask you as an Asian academic, sure. Asian American academic that I know, if our listeners are looking for resources to educate themselves mm. on um, Asian American issues, um, maybe Asian literature, mm-hmm. we all have studied, we are studying English literature um, or literature in general, mm-hmm. you know, literatures in general. Um, off the top of your head, is there something that, you know, off the cuff, you always recommend? Mm. Um, I recommend, like I said, reaching out to a university and seeing if they have an Asian American department. So I'll say this. When I left my PhD at King's, um, I realized a couple things was that I realized I had spent my entire life reading white work. Um, and when I came back to California, California being my area of California being so Asian, I realized I really wanted to connect with a community that I had estranged myself from. Like that's my own. Mm -hmm. Right. And so what I did was I did, I I reached out to someone at UCLA, um, because UCLA has an amazing Asian American department, um, literary Mm -hmm. department. And so I reached out to a professor, that professor sent me their syllabus. I went on Amazon. I bought every single book. Um, and it was amazing. Uh, and so I, I've taken time to get to know my culture, but that was the first step that I took was that I went to a university that I trusted. I emailed a couple professors. Look, they're not all mm-hmm. going to get back to you. We know what the life of an academic oh, yeah. is life, but that was a really good stepping stone. And then from there, I branched out to finding communities, specifically activist communities. Um, mm-hmm. and I call myself a literary activist because I, I want to keep that scholastic tone there because I do think everything that I'm rooted in comes down to research. Um, but mm-hmm. it is hard to find ac- like Asian representation in academia when you're not looking, yeah. especially outside of the States. Um, and so I stumbled upon the mag- the magazine that I'm now managing editor for, which is Slanted. Um, and this is not a shameless plug. This is genuine. Like I, I no, please plug away. I'm like, I'm not trying to, but I, I really did. I was trying to find a way to be active, but I didn't know what I could bring. Mm -hmm. I don't have a political education. That's my issue, right? My, I, I'm living my activist life through my lived experiences. And so I stumbled upon this magazine by Pierce Happenchance on, on online. And it was talking about just publishing stories by Asian Americans. That was all. It's so simple. Um, and mm-hmm. so I bought it and when I received it in the mail, it was really amazing seeing these narratives, um, and seeing myself represented. And I realized that creativity can be a form of activism as well. It doesn't mean you having to go out to march. Um, it doesn't mean you having to donate. That's something that I think we don't talk o- enough about is whenever these things happen, everyone tells you where to donate. Most of us don't have expendable income. Mm-hmm. which is why activism can become performative because we don't know what to do if we don't have the money or the means to to provide support. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I started supporting Asian businesses um, with that activist ba- bent. Um, and so there, you know, AFC is the Asian American Feminist uh, Collective. I follow them. I subscribe to their newsletters. Um, 
and they're definitely more politically savvy than we are. And so any excuse I could find to connect with Asian Americans to hear their stories, because their stories differ from mine, was a really good start to getting to know the community as people and not just as an academic research topic. Yeah. Doing both at the same time. It's work. Don't get me wrong. It's a lot of work. It's work for me and I'm in the community. Yeah. Um, but I feel more empowered to help myself and others doing that work. And, and that's what's really rewarding about it. Yeah. And we definitely have everything linked in the show notes as well. Because mm -hmm. no shameless plugs here. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you, like, what... Yeah. What... I don't want to put you on the spot, but, like, do you have a lot of Asian friends? Um, what, is, what is the Asian community like where you grew up? Was it... Was it prevalent was it something you were aware of and and what was your experience too right so here's the deal mm. um i was born in 1990 mm -hmm. um in east germany so my birth certificate by birth i'm still born in east germany mm -hmm. but the war came down mm -hmm. prior to my birth mm -hmm. and the countries were politically united two months mm -hmm. after i was born mm -hmm. so technically i'm still a citizen Well, I was born a citizen of a country that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. So with that said, of course, in East Germany, we were very much in a bubble, mm -hmm. obviously with or separated against the West, mm -hmm. everything else that was going on. Mm -hmm. So we don't have a lot of minorities where I grew up, mm -hmm. very prevalent white, but we do have... Still very marginalized, but mm -hmm. we do have a Vietnamese community mm. because obviously there's ties with socialism, communism. Yeah, I have family and I have family in Germany, and I always thought that was really interesting. That is actually really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we didn't get in East Germany. We didn't get these influxes of mm -hmm. Italian guest workers, Turkish guest workers, mm -hmm. um, coming into the into West Germany to rebuild after the Second World War. Mm -hmm. We were kind of left to ourselves mm -hmm. and Russia bled us out in Jeez. reparation payments. Yeah. So everything that was left that wasn't destroyed by the Russian army right. or the Russian military was then um, all, the, all the industrial plants, they were literally taken and rebuilt mm -hmm. in Russia on Russian territory mm -hmm. as part of the reparation payments. So we didn't have that influx of you know, other nationalities coming and rebuilding our countries. So mm -hmm. our minorities or the groups that are represented that are non-white mm. are very, very limited. Right, right. Purely right. based on the fact that there was the Iron yeah. Curtain. Yeah, and that makes sense. Even even within Eastern Europe, there wasn't that much movement mm -hmm. because there was this very strict, mm -hmm. you know, border um, that happened. So... I think, and I said it to to Josie as well in terms of, you know, the black community mm -hmm. and the Asian community, there wasn't that much diversity mm -hmm. where I grew up mm -hmm. in my undergrad university mm -hmm. and the first time I really encountered diversity mm -hmm. and our group wasn't that diverse mm -hmm. at Bristol. It wasn't. It wasn't. It really wasn't. Yeah. Right. So Josie was talking about how she, when she walks into rooms, it feels white yeah i remember when josie walked in i thought oh it's another woman of color also why is she so fashionable <laughs> god damn 
Um, but yeah, I agree with her is that when, when we walked into a room, it was, I was very aware that I was a minority, which I always am, yeah. but it was, you know, it's always a reminder. Yeah. yeah. So in, in so many words, yeah. you are probably the first Asian mm. and Asian American mm-hmm. at that, mm-hmm. that I am in close contact with, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So it's through you, I'm learning mm-hmm. some cultural aspects and you know here and there so it's difficult for me because even here in Cork there's not that big of it's an international community right but it's not a people of color yeah or a community where people where where people of color are represented right you know right right it's still white different nationalities but it's still White. white yeah yeah, I get if that. that makes sense. No, and yeah, and I, I I love that you're you're doing these podcasts and that you're bringing on people of color, specifically in the academic space because there's so few of us. Um, and I, you know, love whenever you ask me questions, like when you shoot me texts and you just want to know more. Um, because I think for there are a lot of people like you who grew up in a very small bubble, um, and not because of any choices they made, but they just don't have that many friends of color. And I find that for a lot of my friends, yourself included, who are from that space, you're uncomfortable asking questions first because you don't know how and you don't know when. Um, hmm. And you don't, you know, you don't want to offend anyone. And I think... That's it. I, and, I, and I totally get that. And I think you and I have a really good communication style of we're just blunt with one another. Um, <laughs> but it helps, like, you know, reaching out to people, like, first of all, in the academic space because... You know, I'll give you academic resources um, that yeah. are hopefully unbiased. Um, but I think it's good to ask those questions. And I think, yeah. you know, I commend people who are willing to do that work, who are willing to to know your privilege um, and to want to help and to spread those resources wherever you can in the way that you're doing through this podcast. Like, that's huge. And maybe it's a good way to end this episode mm. to... Spread some more resources. So mm-hmm. please plug Slanted again for us. Oh, to yes. Slanted. End the episode. We are, in, uh, we are an annual print publication. Um, that's just one of our divisions. We host a lot of events. Everything is digital right now. Um, and so if you go to, I think it's, let me, we changed our website recently and we are doing a rebranding, a rebranding, but it's slanted.com, S-L-A-N-T apostrophe D. Um, the roots come with, um, the name slanted refers to our eyes and the way that people have, you know, done things and said things in regard to our eyes. And it's, it's empowering for us to own that. Um, and so we, yeah, we highlight Asian American perspectives. Um, every issue has a theme right now. We're working on issue four and the theme is revolution. We selected this theme in January with no idea what was going to come back when we were young, naive, lovely little babies. And it's been really cool to watch a lot of our, our written pieces transition over time. At the beginning, everyone wrote about their own personal revolutions politically, actively, individually. Um, and then in June, when uh, protests started happening, um, most of our writers, when it felt natural, wanted to take it upon themselves to bring the importance of Black Lives Matter into their work. Um, and so this is a very special issue to us because we believe in you know, starting revolutions for the greater good. Um, and it starts with representation and it starts with caring for black lives 
which translates to the lives of all other people of color. So yeah, check us out. We have a pretty cool Instagram, Slanted Collective. And if anyone ever has any questions, feel free to feel free to send me an email. I love talking about this kind of stuff. Um, this would be like a four-hour freaking lecture if it were up to me. Um, <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, we'll definitely put everything in the show notes. So if you guys want to check it out, put it on all the social media <laughs> yeah and uh, on that note thank you so much for taking the time to talking to me today it was very eye-opening as usual thank you um, for inviting you me so and much. thinking of me absolutely and that concludes this episode in our next episode we're back to our scheduled program and adine jenny and i will talk about the first six months of our phds expectations versus reality thanks for listening this episode of PhD Pending was written and produced by Aideen Regan, Jennifer DeBee, and me, Anna Mahler. Artwork by Neve D. Get in contact with PhD Pending on Twitter at PhD Pod or via email under PhD at gmail.com.